Father, we come before You, Lord, this morning, and we're thankful. We're thankful for all the blessings You've given us. We're thankful for Your Word, and in it, Your truth. So I pray this morning that You be with us. I pray that You be with me as I preach this morning that it's Your Word, Your truth being spoken, not mine. Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, we can leave here being reminded of the love that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. I pray if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't know You, Jesus, as their Lord and as their Savior, that You will work in their hearts. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, they can repent and believe in You. We love You, and in Your name we pray. Alright, if you have your Bibles, you could turn, or actually if you're still there, stay at John chapter 6, verse 35. John 6, verse 35. This morning, we're going to be continuing our series throughout John's Gospel. I want to give a little bit of a recap and a reminder as to where we've been because we, we do come back into the middle of Jesus' discourse, His Bread of Life discourse, a little mini-sermon that He says. So a few weeks ago, we looked at that in John chapter 6, the beginning of it, Jesus multiplies food. He feeds a crowd of over 5,000 people by multiplying loaves of bread and two fish. Five loaves of bread and two fish. As a result of that, the people wanted to take Jesus by force and make Him their conquering King. They wanted to bring Him into Jerusalem, bring Him into the city, and to what? Conquer and get rid of the Roman occupation that the Jews were facing. And that week we looked at Jesus' first mission on earth was not to come as the conquering King, but as John the Baptist proclaimed, the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And what that points to is the cross. That Jesus had to willingly sacrifice and give up His life so that we may have life. And then after that, Jesus perceives that they're going to make Him king, so He withdraws from the crowd. He actually dismisses the crowd of people. He dismisses His disciples away. And Jesus goes alone to be by Himself. During that time, the disciples are in rough waters. They're sailing across the Sea of Galilee. There's a supernatural windstorm. They're rowing against the wind, against the waves for hours. And then at between six or 3 and 6 a.m. in the morning, Jesus shows up to them walking on water. Yet another miracle that John records in his Gospel. And they first think he's a ghost, but after seeing that it's Jesus, he comes on the boat and they receive him and they worship him. And they say, truly, truly, he's the Son of God. And we saw that the disciple, a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus, their true response, a biblical response is what? Is to worship Jesus. To give Him the glory that's due despite the circumstances. The disciples could have said, Jesus, where were you 12 hours ago? Why did you make us wait and go through the storm and the rough seas? Why did you show up now at the end of it? They didn't do that. They took hold and they worshipped Him. So as a follower of Jesus, despite our circumstance, whether we're in a storm of life, or whether things are going great, we're supposed to what? Give God the glory that's due. Our circumstances don't dictate the worship that's due to God. And then after that, last week we looked at the remaining crowd. A day later, the crowd shows up at the beachfront and they're, they're looking for Jesus. You might read that and say, wow, look at the faith of this crowd. They really love Jesus. They really want to find Him. And for whatever reason, they get drawn to Capernaum and that's where they see Jesus. And last week we looked at the simple fact that this crowd followed Jesus initially for the signs and the wonders and the miracles that He was doing to them or for them. And then Jesus says, you're following Me because I gave you food yesterday. And they're being led to follow Jesus because they got a free meal. Their bellies were full. 
And then the crowd, Jesus again proclaims that he's the true bread. That what the, the manna in the Old Testament was just a foreshadow of what's to come, that Jesus is the true bread. And the crowd says, prove it. Jesus, if you're really who you say you are, prove it to us. Give us more signs. They go back to the Old Testament and say, remember Moses, he fed the nation of Israel for 40 years. You just gave us one meal one day. You owe us a couple more days here, a couple more years. And as a result of that, Jesus corrects their thinking. He corrects their doctrine and says, God was the one that gave your ancestors the food, the manna from heaven, not Moses. He was the means by which they received it. And then we ended with this verse in verse 34. We ended with this. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus was setting up a promise. He's saying, what I have to give you, the bread that I will give you, will eternally satisfy you. And the crowd says, like the woman at the well, Jesus, give us, we want this bread. We don't want to be hungry. And the point was, they were still thinking physically as Jesus is talking spiritually. He's talking about the spiritual. So that's a little bit of a recap of where we, where we left off. And this at verse 35, this is like the mic drop moment. The main thing that Jesus is getting to. He says this, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Growing up, I loved chicken tenders. I still do. I just really can't eat them because they're gluten and I have a gluten intolerance. So it's sad. But every time we'd go to Outback or we go to Applebee's, or we go to wherever, I would get chicken tenders. And when I, when I was with my friends, I'd feel the judgment. Oh, little David, you want your chicken tendies? Oh, that's cute. I'm like, why can't an adult, why can't somebody get chicken tenders and not be judged for being a baby? Right, so I'm here to defend chicken tenders. But I'll say this. Once you've had a really good steak at a steakhouse, or at a steak diner, whatever you want to say, I doubt you'll go there and order the chicken tenders. Right? Well, maybe you will. I won't judge you for that. I won't. I won't. But I doubt you will because that steak is, is delicious. And it just got me thinking, right? As Paul's talking to the church in Corinth, there's a complaint. He's saying to the church, to the, to the, the believers there, you love the milk. You love the childish, simple doctrines that aren't very full of, of depth and full of life. You love the milk. But he says, as a child that progresses, you need to start feeding and getting onto the meat of things. That's why I look around and, and hopefully none of us are still nursing from our mothers. Why? Because it does nothing for us. It'd be weird. As an adult, why? We need food. We need the meat. We can't live on milk alone. So there's this maturity that happens through the sanctification process of believers by the power of the Holy Spirit that we move away from chicken tenders and we move towards steak. Right, I'm still not saying there's nothing wrong with the chicken tenders, but it's okay, and we're supposed to as Christians, we what? We go towards the meat. We get into heavy doctrine, and we don't, oh, I don't want to talk about this. I don't get any of it. No, the attitude is, I can't wait to learn about this. So this morning, I'm going to say something. There's some heavy and deep doctrinal truths, and I don't want you to get caught up. I don't want you to get bored or distracted by what Jesus has proclaimed because they are amazing truths about God's sovereignty over everything, including our salvation. So as we start, and none of this was in my notes, by the way. I had, I had that completely just, I don't know. I was going to start off and say, hey, I have no hook. I have no, no, nothing funny to draw us in. But we'll see what happens here. This Holy Spirit gave it to me, I, I think. In your notes, number one, we see Jesus say the bread of life. Again, he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me, 
shall not hunger. Whoever believes in Me shall never thirst. Verse 36, But I said to you, he's talking to the crowd, I said to you, you have seen Me, and yet you do not believe. Last year I talked about the I Am statements of Jesus. This is the first one in John's Gospel. There's seven total. I'm not going to go deep into it because I did that last year. So if you're interested in that, you can, I can point you back to that sermon. But rather I want to look at the two promises that we have from Jesus as He claims to be the true bread sent from heaven, the bread of life. The first is this. We will not hunger. The second is we will not thirst. There's a promise like we talked about last week of total satisfaction when we come and we believe in Jesus. Our hungry and our thirsty souls receive eternal satisfaction. Eternal life. But as Jesus says here, there there are two conditions before we find out that we can't be hungry and we won't be thirsty. The two things that Jesus says is, number one, whoever comes to Me, whoever comes to Me shall not hunger. To come to Jesus is to forsake our old life, our old way, and to follow Him. Think about the disciples. They literally came to Jesus. They went to Him and they turned their back on their profession, their families, and they followed Him. They went with Him in the literal sense. And in the same way as Christians, we are to turn away from our will. We turn away from our old life before Christ. And when when we come to Christ, we follow Him, His way, His will. I will equate it to this. When we come to Jesus, I'll use this word. It's repentance. It's repentance. To repent means to literally turn away, to do a 180 and go the opposite direction. When we come to Jesus, we turn away from our old life and what do we do? We turn to Him and follow Him. In 2 Corinthians 5, and I think most of us know this verse, 2 Corinthians 5.17, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has what? Passed away. The old is gone. It's dead. Behold, the new has come. So similar to repentance, when we come to Christ by the power and the working of the Holy Spirit, in John chapter 3, we're born again. That's the promise that Jesus says. All those who are born again enter into the kingdom of God. When we have a regenerated heart, when we put to death our old self, our old will, and we follow Jesus, His way and His will. For those who come to Jesus, who repent and submit to Him, the promise is they shall never hunger. And again, Jesus isn't talking physically because guess what? I'm hungry all the time. And if He was talking physically, then there's a problem here. He's talking spiritually to the people. And the second thing He says is whoever believes. So the first we have to come to Him to repent. And on the other hand, He says, those who believe in Me shall never thirst. To believe in Jesus is to believe Him and to trust Him as your Lord and your Savior. It's to believe that Jesus is who He really said He was in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the Gospels. That He is God eternal sent down from heaven who willingly came and died for us to save us. I would say this, to believe in Jesus is what? Faith. Faith. So we have repentance and we have faith. When we put our faith in Jesus, we also believe the promises that He says as true that He came down and died for us, and that all who believe in Him will be saved. So far in in six chapters in the John's Gospel, we've learned a lot. Jesus has claimed many times to give life. He's claimed many times to give eternal life. Right? Those are the claims of Jesus. 
So in this one verse, he says, I am the bread of life, we see repentance and faith. And one pastor said, these terms are two sides of the same coin. When we repent, we turn from our sin. And when we have faith, we turn to God. It's the same turning. We turn away from our sin and we turn towards God. Faith and repentance. In the same way as Christians, we have to affirm that Jesus Christ is both our Lord and our Savior. A lot of Christians, I'm using quotes here, a lot of Christians have no problem making Jesus their Savior. Why? Because he's a scapegoat. Okay, Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for me. Thank you so much. I'll just keep living my life my way. The problem with that is what? Pride. Selfishness. Not being humble. Jesus has to be our Savior, but he has to be our Lord. And when Jesus is our Lord, what does that mean? We obey and we submit to him. That what he says goes. He's our master. He's our Lord. He's our king. So again, to summarize here, point number one, Jesus, the bread of life, promises us eternal satisfaction, spiritual, eternal life. When we come to him, repent, and when we believe in him, have faith in him. The second thing we see in these verses, and we're going to get a little bit more of some meat here, so don't, I don't want to lose you. We see God's sovereignty in salvation. In verse 37, Jesus says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me. Whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. In these verses, there's kind of two subpoints we'll go through. The first is we see some truth of the relationship amongst the Trinity between the Father and Son in the Trinity. But Jesus also lays out and argues that God is completely sovereign in and over our salvation. So here you have the Trinitarian relationship, Father, Son, this is the truth revealed by Jesus. And on the flip side, we also see that God is sovereign. God is in complete control over our salvation. Here are some of the truths that Jesus revealed about the Trinity between the Father and Son. The first is this, those who are saved, those who are given to Jesus are a love gift from the Father to His Son. All the believers are a love gift from God the Father to His Son. That's what Jesus says in verse 37. The Father gives to the Son. The second thing we see is that Jesus the Son has come down from heaven not to do His own will, but in complete unity and in complete and total what? Togetherness with the Father. He's come to do the will of the Father. That's verse 38. Also in John chapter 5, previously Jesus also proclaimed that. And then we see the third thing, the will of God the Father is that everyone who believes in the Son, who believes in Jesus, will be saved and raised up on the last day. Again, we see the, the Trinity at work in salvation. And as I, was, as I was preparing for my ordination, writing out my doctrinal statement, there's a section that you have to write about, about salvation. And I want to give a little snippet of what I wrote. And, and here we see again, throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament and the Bible, how the Trinity works when it comes to our salvation. How the triune God works. This is what I wrote. Salvation is a free gift from God that is not earned or deserved by anything we've done. 
It's entirely the work of God. Let me read that again. It's entirely the work of God based on His goodness, His grace, and His mercy. That's Ephesians 2. Salvation is received by personal faith in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is sovereign over salvation and has called those to Himself in love. We can also see the Trinity at work in salvation. The Father elects. The Father predestines. And He gives them to Jesus. Jesus gathers the elect. And through His sacrificial death on the cross, He purchases them. The Holy Spirit takes their dead hearts and gives them a new, spiritually alive heart. And looking in Scripture, there's a clear process to how God operates, the triune God operates in the plan of salvation. There's election, regeneration, justification, sanctification, glorification. And you might be like, okay, I'm lost. That's too much. Talk to me after. I'll, I'll walk you through. But what we see here is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit each play a role when it comes to our salvation. Now we get back to John's Gospel. right? That's the triune nature, the relationship Father-Son that Jesus reveals here. But he also reveals two doctrinal pillars or truths about God's sovereignty or God's complete control over. The first thing we see is that the believer has eternal security. We as believers have eternal security in Jesus. What does that mean? That means if we, are, if we have come to Christ and we're born again, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we can never lose our eternal life. We can never lose what God has given us. There's security for the believers. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives to me will come. Notice those, those words. All, not some, but all that the Father gives will, not might, not maybe, will come to me. And whoever comes to me, Jesus says this, I will never cast out. Jump down to verse 39. He says, that I should lose nothing of all that has been given to me, but raise him up on the last day. Verse 40, and I will raise him up on the last day. When you read those, there's this, that my mind starts to go with, we're, we're in Christ until when? The last day when he raises us up with him in heaven. And then you jump down to verse 44. We didn't get there yet, but we'll jump down there. Jesus' promise, he mentions this, to raise up on the last day. Again, that same phrase. And it means that if we're truly in Christ and we've been born again, we can never lose our salvation. We don't have to go and walk through our life on eggshells and we're like, oh, I, I messed up today. I don't know. How, maybe I lose my salvation or not. No. No, we go in faith and repentance to the Lord and we, 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 we confess our sins to Him. But the promise of eternal life is eternally secured in our Savior. I feel so sorry for people who think they can lose their salvation because I couldn't imagine going through life that way. I'd be a nervous wreck every day. Is today the day I mess up? Is today the, the, the time I sin too much to out God's grace? No. We have eternal security in Jesus. And the second pillar of a doctrinal truth we see when it comes to God's sovereignty over salvation, or really we see, we'll say this, God's totally in control over our salvation. He's in complete control. In verse 37 again, all that the Father gives to me will come. The Father has given to Jesus those who have been predestined in Christ. And you say, well, where do you get that? It's not here. If you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 1 verse 3, Paul sets this up, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ 
with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, God predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. According to the purpose of God's will. To the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved, in, in Christ, in Jesus. And we learn here that even before we were born, even before the foundation of the earth, God chose. God predestined. In love, He predestined us. He adopted us as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ, again, according to His perfect will. The purpose of His will. And if we head back to John chapter 6, verse 44... Jesus says this, no one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. So in this one verse, Jesus affirms that no person, no one can come to him, can receive eternal life, can come to Jesus unless the Father has first drawn him. And here we see this doctrine called total depravity. There's a lot of confusion when we get to this, this term, total depravity. Some people think that total depravity means that uh, no matter what, we always choose the, the most evil thing we can do. I, I don't see that in the world. If it was, we'd all be in trouble right now because I'm sure we're not acting and, 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 and we're not being as evil as we could be ever morally at the choices we make. But rather, total depravity means this. It means the totality, the whole human nature, our whole human nature has been corrupted, has been poisoned, has been polluted, has been touched by sin. That every inch of us from our head down to our toes has what? Been infected by sin. That we are all sinners. We all have a sin problem. That's what the Gospel and what's what Paul and Jesus has preached. Scripture tells us that apart from Christ, all of us, before we came to Christ, before we were born again, all humanity has this in common. We have a mind that's been darkened and cannot see the truth. We have a heart that's been defiled and we cannot love the truth. We have a will that is dead and is in bondage to sin and we cannot believe the Gospel by ourselves. If you want to turn there, actually if you could turn there, Romans chapter 3. Turn to Romans chapter 3. We're going to see Paul set up this argument or set up this doctrine of total depravity. And what this means is no matter what we do, no one is righteous enough for God. Why? Because we're all affected and infected by sin. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. This is what Paul says. What then? Are we Jews any better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jew and Greek, that's all the world, are under sin as it is written. And now Paul quotes Old Testament. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. My basic reading of this, the answer is, who's good? No one. Who's righteous? No one. Who seeks for God? No one. Now we have a problem here. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. 
In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Apart from Christ, this is the natural heart of every one of us. Apart from the work of what the Holy Spirit does to us. No one's righteous. No one seeks God. No one understands. As Jesus says, no one, if you want to turn back to John, no one comes to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now this word draws, we have to talk about it for a few moments. The word draw does not mean to woo. It does not mean to seduce or to win over. It's not like, like, like oh, here's a, a big thing of flowers, Stephanie. Hey, you know, he, you know, do you love me? Hey, come do, do this for me because I'm trying to woo you over and win you over. That's not what the word draws means here. It means to compel. It's actually a, a kind of a forceful word. And here's what I mean. The same words found in Acts 21 and in James 2. In Acts 21, verse 30, it says this, The city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple. The dragged him is the word draw him. To drag him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. It's not this, this nice wooing of, hey, come on, Paul, can you, can you come out of the temple, please? Come on. It's, no, it's, it's a seizing of dragging. In James chapter 2, it's the same word. He says this in James 2, verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you, the ones who drag you? There it is, drag you into courts. What does all this mean? Right, this is a lot. This, is, this could be a too, maybe it's too much meat. I hope it's not, but I hope we're enjoying some of it. Apart from God intervening, apart from the Holy Spirit drawing us to God, we are utterly and unable to come to Christ because of our sin, because of our darkened hearts, because of our hardened hearts. It's only by the grace of God and the work of God sinners can come to Christ for forgiveness and eternal life. It is God who draws the sinners to Christ. Jesus said it plainly in verse 44. Man is helpless and unable to respond to the Gospel without God's sovereign calling. And in no way does this mean that we stop evangelizing. Right? You don't say, oh, well, if, you know, if it's up to God, then you know, what am I going to do? I'll just sit here and do nothing then. No, we're still commanded by Jesus to go and to evangelize, to go and tell others about the Gospel. God does use us. I love it. God uses us for His glory and for our joy, right? But ultimately, it's God who saves. And I've said that multiple times up here. We share the Gospel. We tell people about Christ, but we don't save them. We don't change their hearts. Only God does that. And let Him. He's better at it than we can ever be. Moving on, because there could be so much more. And we've got to get through John. I don't want to spend five years in John's Gospel. But we'll, we'll move on. Point number three. We're going to see the ancient Israelites versus the Jews' response. We're going to see how the Jewish people respond to Jesus and everything He just said, and we'll compare it to the ancient Israelites. Verse 41, He says this, So the Jews grumbled about Him because He said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does He now say, I've come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. Let me stop there. Did you notice the crowd's response? They grumbled. They complained. They murmured. 
They had the same response as the Israelites did in the wilderness, even when God provided for them with manna from heaven. They complained. Now specifically, the Jews complained not about everything Jesus said, but they got caught up on one thing that Jesus said. If you look back at verse 41, it says the Jews grumbled because Jesus said, I've been, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They couldn't get past the fact that Jesus said that He came down from heaven because they, got, they, they were thinking, well, wait a minute, we, we know your parents. Are you not the son of Joseph? Jesus, we, we know your, your, your earthly birth story. We know where you come from. You've grown up here. We've seen you. But ultimately, they missed the truth about who Jesus is saying He is. That He's the bread that came down from heaven. He's the true manna. You have John the Baptist declaring it. John the Baptist, the forerunner for the Messiah, looks at Jesus, remember in John chapter 1, and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You then have Jesus Himself with His miracles, His preaching, all the supernatural things He's doing to reinforce who He is. You have Jesus' self-claims about Himself and the Old Testament that speak of Him. In John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees. We went over this. But He says to them, You search the Scriptures. You search the Old Testament, the Torah, because you think that in them there's eternal life. But Jesus says, It's they that bear witness about Me. They bear witness about Me. And yet you refuse to come that you may have life. In this response from the Jews, we see a hardening of their heart towards Jesus. They grumble. They complain. They can't get past that He came down from heaven. And not only that, they keep thinking physically over and over and over again when Jesus is talking spiritually. Now we get to verse 44. Jesus says, No one can come to Me unless the Father who sent Me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And what He does is in verse 45, now Jesus quotes from Old Testament to back up what He just said. He backs up His claim in verse 44. He says this, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to Me. Jesus emphasizes that His teaching, what He claimed is consistent with the Old Testament. That no one can come to Jesus unless the Father draws them. That without the relationship with God, there's no coming to Jesus. Everyone who's heard or learned who knows the Father comes to Jesus. Those in relationship are drawn. They come. That's what Jesus is quoting from in verse 44 to back up His claim in verse 44. Now Jesus, again, He reminds the crowd and He compares Himself with the manna in the Old Testament. If you jump down to verse 49, He says this, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. What is He telling them? The manna that you hold to such high regard as holy and great and sent from God, what happened to all your fathers in the wilderness? They all physically died. The manna was not enough to keep them alive forever and ever and ever. It satisfied their physical hunger. It gave them some nourishment. But ultimately, they all died. They all died. And then verse 50, This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus' claim is that all of who eat of Himself, the living bread, they'll live forever. Their spiritual, eternal life. Jesus' claim is that He offers something far better, something far greater 
than the manna that God gave to the Israelites. And in verse 51, he says, The bread I give you for the life of the world is my flesh. And as we read that verse, living on the, you know, the opposite other side of the cross, right? we look back to the cross as the Gospel writers, right? what Jesus, what he's saying now, the cross is coming in their future, in Jesus' future. But as we look back at the cross, we read this, give for the life of the world is my flesh. As I read that, it, it points me back to the cross. The price of our redemption was the crucifixion of Jesus. His body, his flesh was physically beat was broken, was killed on the cross. Again, the Jews are still thinking physically. They're thinking cannibalism. They're thinking literally Jesus is saying, come and eat of my flesh. Come take a bite. You'll live forever. But that's not what he's saying. And we see this in verse 52. It says, Then the Jews disputed. They argued now among themselves, saying, How can this man give us flesh to eat? Right? They're still thinking physically. And I love what Jesus does in verse 53. He actually ups the ante. He says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever eats the flesh of the Son of Man, and then he adds, and drinks his blood, you have no life in you if you don't do that. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks of my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Again, they're arguing. They're thinking physically, literally. Not only does they feed my flesh, but he says, drink my blood. And again, Jesus' words here are not literal. He says, well, how how do you know that? Because it was against Old Testament law to drink blood. There were laws against that. And Jesus, we know that he came and lived fully obedient, perfect to the law. He wouldn't command people to do that physically. He's talking spiritually. And this goes to the last part of the sermon this morning. We see our union with Christ. This speaks of our union with Christ. He's talking about the cross, both feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood have to do with accepting the sacrificial death of Jesus. That at the cross, Jesus' body was broken. His blood was poured out. It speaks of His death on the cross as the final sacrifice for our sin. And it also foreshadows and points to our union with Christ. In verse 56, whoever feeds on my flesh, drinks of my blood, abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, I live because of the Father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. If you notice the word, Jesus uses abide. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 15 where he says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. It is our complete dependency and our continual continual need to remain in Christ. Apart from him we can do nothing. If we abide in Jesus and he abides in us, we'll have eternal life. It speaks of our communion, our union with our Savior. If you can, turn to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. This is a verse that we read a lot of times for baptisms. It talks about our unity and union with Christ. Romans chapter 6, verse 3. Paul says this, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Right There's the communion. There's the abiding in. We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Verse 5, For if we have been united with Him in a death like His, 
we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. We all know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. And I'll stop there, but notice the words Paul's using. With Him. With Him. United with. Right? The same thing. It talks of our union with Christ. We're reminded of the importance of abiding in Jesus, having communion with Him. Because apart from Him, we're helpless. And apart from Him, we remain guilty in our sin before God. Jesus' offer to the Jewish people, the crowd that's right here in front of Him, His offer is so much better than that of the manna their fathers received in the wilderness. He continually is telling them this. As the Jews longed for their Messiah to come and to feed them manna from heaven, they missed the significantly better bread of heaven, bread of life, that was being offered to them. Their hearts were hardened. They wanted, again, Jesus to be their Messiah, their way, not the Messiah that Jesus has come to be, the will of the Father. Now I want to say this as I wrap it up and end, that in Jesus alone, we have eternal satisfaction for our hungry souls. That in Jesus alone, we have eternal life. We cling to Him. We abide in Him. As Christians, we remember the cross. At the cross, we remember that grace was poured out to us. That Jesus' death was enough. And that all who believe in Him will be saved. He's the giver of life. And we have a God who loves us. A God who pursued us. A God who calls us to Himself. And I just can't stop myself from saying, praise God. Praise God for His mercy. Let's pray. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for this time where we can go through it verse by verse and just be reminded of the blessings and the promises that Jesus has given us and has told us. We thank You, God, that we know in Christ we have eternal security. We don't have to live a life of fear if we're truly in Christ and we've been born again. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. I pray that we can live in that confidence. I pray that we can get just boldness in our faith. And if we're living in that fear of constantly being afraid of, 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 of just not having assurance of our salvation, I pray, Lord, that You, by the power of Your Holy Spirit, comfort and give peace to those hearts who are worried. Lord, I pray that even as we read too, that salvation is the work of You, God. You're the one who did everything. If it was up to us, none of us are good. None of us are righteous. None of us are seek You. But Lord, we thank You that You called us and You draw us to Your Son. We thank You, Jesus, for being our Savior, for loving us, for dying on the cross, taking the penalty of our sin on the cross. And we praise You as our Lord and Savior that You rose again and that Your death paid the price and paid it in full. And I pray, Lord, that we can live our life in confidence knowing where we'll be when we die knowing that You, Jesus, are the giver of life, that You are our Lord and our Savior. I pray that we can live with You as our Lord and Savior. And I pray, Lord, that if there's anybody here this morning who doesn't believe in You, that the Holy Spirit can start working in their heart, that they can repent and have faith in You. I pray, Lord, for Gospel moments as we go back to work, go back home, go back wherever this week. Lord, give us boldness to share our faith 
Help us to not be afraid. Help us to have confidence. Jesus, we love you, and in your name we pray. Amen.